0: Hello, everyone. This is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast. It's Christmas week, and today I'm delighted to share this interview with John Dyer, Assistant Professor of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, and someone I consider a pioneer and seminal scholar in the theology of technology. Let's tune in. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, it's so great. Um, I remember when I was first introduced to your book, uh, From the Garden to the City, almost, has it been a decade now? Um, Just when I was uh, starting to work at Amazon. Mm. And I just loved it because it uh, put a theological lens on all the things that I, as an Amazonian, was Mm. facing as a creator of technology, technology, Mm. not just a consumer of it. Um, And one of the big takeaways that I took away from your book back then was that God is not just redeeming human souls or human Mm. beings. God is redeeming human makings. Uh, And that was just stunning for me and infused a lot of significance to uh, the things that we already as technologists love in our work, you know, making Mm. awesome technology and seeing how we can connect with the gospel and how God is creating, making all things new. Mm-hmm. um so i really value your insights from that time and i know that you've written so much more since that time that i you know i'm totally happy to talk about on this podcast episode but to kick it off maybe could you give your uh, summary of you know your thoughts on theology of technology mm-hmm. as a whole and then also what's changed in the new edition of mm-hmm. from the garden to the city since you first wrote it
1: yeah thanks that's a great question well the the first edition came out in 2011 and then the new edition just came out, you know, last month, in, in twenty twenty, right toward the end, twenty twenty two, right toward the end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was originally doing this stuff, I'll just kind of give you my quick journey as being a software developer, and mostly on the web development side. I just just love making stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and um, thinking about, you know, here, my face over here and my technology's over here, and they just they know each other, but they're kind of on, on opposite sides of the street. And someone kind of challenged me with that view that these two should come together in in, in more direct ways. But what it seemed like at the time in that um, you know 2005 2010 time zone, there's a time frame. There's a, there's early social media. iPhone is released. All that stuff is kind of happening right in that zone. And it seemed like there was either this side of hey, you know, you have to use this as fast as you can for the gospel's sake. Don't think about it. Just do. Okay. Other side of everything's bad and it's just going to get worse and you shouldn't use it, you know? And I'm going, man, there's gotta be some way forward that isn't, isn't so naive to just say, don't think about it, but also isn't um, just swishing a cocktail talking about how bad it is, but never. <laughs> and so um, I, I thought, man, there's gotta be a way forward. And so I, you know, I started reading a bunch of different thinkers and again, it, it, it seemed to come down to what was online at the time was here's how to do it or here's why not to do it, but there wasn't anything in between. So um, I started, you know, writing this thing going, like you said, it looks like when I, when I reread the story of scriptures with a, with a technological lens, uh-huh. I see that human making is a big part of it. we can talk about specific uh, things from, from Noah to the cross. Right. Um, but at the same time, it, it is concerned with how the patterns of life that we have form us and our communities. And so it does seem like it's giving us these, I don't know if I want to say warnings, but just thinking through um, what type of life we want to live and, and how the patterns and rituals that are sometimes technological or artistic, how those, those shape us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that, that was what that, that book did a lot of, or at least hoped that it would give someone like you at Amazon some hopefulness, but also some reflectivity. Um, and then push someone that was only wanting to do reflectivity to have some hopefulness in <laughs> Now, since then, a lot of the technology that I think was um, kind of on the edge, you know, you know, Bitcoin was around in 2011, yeah. but it wasn't something that everybody knew about, right? Um, same thing with like, I mean, VR has been around forever, but it is it is at a point where we're seeing it a lot more. And you know, maybe we wouldn't have called it Web three, uh, but some of the things that are that are um, that are um, kind of we on the edge are now in front of everybody. Yeah. And some of the things that were kind of sci-fi are now there. And then some of the things that were um, kind of new and cool are now in the background. So, you know, in, in 2010, the iPad had just come out. And so just the idea that we would run around with tablets and that, um, you know, airplanes wouldn't have them and had to have screens anymore because we all bring our own screen. Yeah. That was all kind of shifting from, the um, the kind of technological elite has to now everybody has. Mm-hmm. And then the ideas that were in sci-fi now are kind of on that elite thing. So trying to accomplish some of those shifts and then just add some things I wanted to add. So that mm-hmm. was, that's some of what the new book does.
0: Did you also end up addressing artificial intelligence, AI? Yeah, I, I'm yeah, sure that really- that's a big... Shift.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of framing that in um, both just the, the present issues that we're all looking at, whether that's you know, kind of ethical issues and privacy and, and stuff like that, uh, don't really go a ton into sort of the idea of creativity and what does it mean for an AI to create. or okay. just kind of doing some pointers on those subjects. But um, but I think even, even its role in a kind of of alternate theological hope, where you know, we would say that technology is something that God has has originally given us before the fall to do the task of filling the earth and ruling over it. Then we would say that after the fall, it takes on this additional additional dimension of overcoming some of the effects of the fall Mm -hmm. and giving us a glimpse of the future, but not being our actual hope. Mm -hmm. I think that there's that shift where, um, A lot of times, technology becomes its own kind of religion. That this is going to solve all the problems, Mm. and I think we should. I think we should work toward human flourishing, but not allow it to become kind of a false savior. Well, I think I think AI, in some of the narratives, plays that role of once we get this right, everything will be better. Mm -hmm. And I think there, I think we're we've seen just enough dystopia to kind of be a little suspicious of that um
0: <laughs> more than we, a little yeah, suspicious yeah <laughs> exactly
1: what would that be um you know just all the kinds of different bias that we build into judicial systems or facial tracking or whatever it is i think we've seen our own issues that we put into it and then also just some of the downsides the things that that happen on the other end of it so talk through some of those things yeah
0: yeah i think that as a well as a creator of technology uh, AI can feel so powerful at the at the kind of data surveillance surveillance level that you know all this power is being given to these companies and stuff. They're like a, the tech titans have so much power. Governments can have that power as well. And it feels as if uh, one ethos, at least as a believer, is uh, we see God emptying himself of power on the mm, cross yeah. in order to empower human beings to become like God, to become like Christ. And I can see how, as a builder of technology as well, that ethos can be trying to you know, be guilt into the thing, the technologies that we're building so that we're actually empowering people and not trying to centralize that power and give it into the hands of Mm. a a new emperor per se. And, you know, what's kind of exciting recently has been like stability, uh, the stable diffusion, those models and stuff for image generation and even large language models like uh, GPT-3, there's like open source versions and it's like people are really stunned that, at what they can do on their own personal computer with the GPU yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Uh, and those kinds of trends just feel like it's in line with that empowering people kind of thing, instead of centralizing, uh, you know, data. But anyway, that yeah. was a, a little brief tangent. Uh, I, I wanted to dive a little bit into, um, you know, you, you touched on three technologies mm-hmm. and technology is, is kind of faddish, right? It's so fashionable. It's constantly changing. Yeah. And um, what have you found in how Christians are thinking about, uh, technology and theology of technology how has that changed since the first publication of your book do you feel like Mm -hmm. there's a greater awareness and literacy in in technology or is it kind of still stuck in the old mold that you said of like it's all bad and or it's you know it's like it's going to save us have you found more nuance in that Mm -hmm. how has it evolved since that time
1: Yeah. yeah i think the other big one that we haven't touched on in that in that time frame is the whole pandemic and what that did to church and life and I think we all, you know, certainly discovered that we can do a lot of things online, like a, the interview that we're doing right now, and how helpful that is. And yet, you know, that's that's not what we want to do for everything. And so, I think we're still in that moment of trying to figure out what that what that balance is. And I think there's there's been a lot of great publications, like like Deep Work or something like that about um the kind of what what the sort of interrupt does where we're you know we're on slack and email and twitter all at the same time you just it's really hard to get work done and trying to have those separate times so I, i do see more and more of the the awareness of not just the the morality of the content but that um the kinds of lives we're we're living aren't that much better you know that that maybe we are more stressed out and more tired but what I don't see is 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 us having the self discipline to be able to overcome it. It seems like it's an all or nothing. So I, most of the time when I hear somebody they're going, man, I'm, I'm going on a you know a full week fast, or I've deleted every app on my phone, or something like that. It just it does seem like we're you know really struggling with um, how to have some level of sort of control or, or healthy patterns. And I I'm interested, you know, my kids are now in middle school, so I've got a sixth grader and an eighth grader, and they they seem to be aware of more at, at their parents than their, than their peers. You know, I think that, I think they notice oh. peers who can't, um, you know, can't be in an event. So my, my kids were at a, uh, like a bar mitzvah recently and everybody except a couple kids were dancing. Just a couple of them were over in the corner with the phone.
0: Okay. But I think,
1: so I think they recognize that there are some kids that do that, but their perspective is it's mostly parents that, <laughs> that are doing that. Oh, so, so it's some interesting generational moves that I think there's a, a savviness and uh, um, and maybe a propensity more towards smaller networked app type things mm. than toward like, hey, I need 10,000 followers on X or whatever. It's like, yeah, this seems kind of dumb to some kids. So it's interesting to watch those generational shifts.
0: That, that, that's not even being taught by parents. And if parents are the ones who are complicit in being addicted to their phones, the kids yeah. have like a an instinct of their own, it sounds like, where they're craving something more that they can't get otherwise.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it's really, you know, challenging as, as a parent to go, man, I want to, want to protect you from this thing that I can't always protect myself from. And, yeah. and if I, the more I protect you from it, I'm doing air quotes for those who, who are listening um, <laughs> that, that I protect you from it. I'm also sealing you off from your social world, right? Because oh, wow. they can't, you can't communicate with them um, because, you know, nobody has a home phone, right? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So uh, and, and yeah, there's the flip side pressure for kids in that, you know, you can have kids be mean to you all day from eight to four, but now it's happening from four to eight. You know, it's happening that, that other period of time where all of the things are happening online, those yep. are the, um, the difficult scenarios. So I think there's some real extremes of things that are much more hurtful than they would have been, you know, say for you and I and our generation, but, um, but at the same time, I think a, a savviness and an awareness as well.
0: I mean, I, I, I like what you said, because I think there's a certain humility that, uh, I guess as, as older generations, we have to come with towards the younger ones who in many ways are more digitally literate than we are mm-hmm. um, in trying to protect them. And at the same time, not being as like aware of the kind of the milieu that they exist mm-hmm. in and the social networks that they exist in and still being concerned for them. Like yeah. I, I sometimes when I read the literature in the Christian world, at least about theology of technology, I get concerned because it sounds like a parent who doesn't really understand trying to mm-hmm. tell people like how to manage their digital lives, And, uh, and I feel like, there's just so much nuance that's like missed in, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of oversimplifying it. And you kind of touched on that by talking about how you're cutting them off of their social world if you really just ban it. Uh, so that, that's just fascinating. I don't know if you have more insights into that, but.
1: Well, I would say, you know, one of the things we try to do is from the early young age say, hey, you know, screens should be for creating things, not just consuming things. And so I want to really push you in that direction. So there'd be times where I'd say, you know, hey, we, we want to have screen time and stuff like that on them, but I was less concerned with um, the the net amount of time in front of a screen, and more concerned with how much of that is like watching a show or just doing something like that versus like learning something. You know, if you're watching a YouTube tutorial to learn Blender or you're, um, you know, watching that to like make a schedule on Word or something like that, you know, whatever it is, that that creative output part of it is is what I've tried to drive them more toward. Now, I, I still think for people like me that um, can still get lost, and I could sit on a screen for, you know, 12 hours making something, and, and that might not be healthy either. So, you know, there, there does, I think, for anything that we're doing, there needs to be, you know, controls and and things like that for healthy habits overall. But um, I think that's been helpful. And then I think we're at that stage now where, you know, there there are some parents that give kids phones in like third grade, and I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's really unwise and unhelpful to them. But I think as you get into middle school, there's going to be some place where you know some type of communication device. I've seen parents give kids you know kind of like a, an iWatch where they can you know text or call, but it's not going to let them do a lot of the other things that are they're okay. difficult. But they still have a way of being accessed. There's lots of other you know gab phones and just you know kind of. Dumb phones that you can buy that you know allow you to have that that first layer of interaction and, and learn that way, and I think it's it's a lot like you know training wheels or um, you know a permit license that you get when you're 15 or something like that, where you're trying to say, I cannot. Uh, it, it would be incredibly unwise for me to send you to college having never used a smartphone mm-hmm. um, or, or never used social media or something like that but it would also be probably unwise to say, I'm going to give you everything when you're you know eight. <laughs> so just, yeah. somewhere in there, where those lines are, and when you stack them on, um, probably if you have any sense of not doing it when they're eight, you're going to be the weird parent. That's what almost always happens. <laughs> um, there, there's always going to be a, a push toward earlier. And I think that the, um, uh, kind of going off on a side tangent here, I think one of the, one of the myths is, that if I don't give my kids um, screens, technology, whatever, early on, they won't be able to be in a digital world. And I think, I think that's probably the biggest false one that's out there that would say yeah. the people who made iPhones and all these gadgets didn't grow up with them. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I was, I was talking with someone at Amazon the other day, and they were like, we need more coders. So what we're going to do is we're going to develop a nine-month coding camp that uh-huh. we can just blast people through and take someone from – you know, um, you know, cleaning or something like that to, to being be a coder in nine months. Well, if that's possible, then you don't need to start doing that when you're six. You mm-hmm. just don't. Now, if that's if that's a creative endeavor, that's great. But I think the the myth is if I if I hand my kid an iPad, they're going to become a um, Steve Jobs. <laughs> that's, that's not what's going to happen. It actually requires a lot of intentionality to direct people toward really creative things. Because even some of the best. Um, kind of code camp things are, are are really just bad video games right yeah just, um, kind of logic not bad video games but just sort of logic games mm-hmm. and when you know puzzles yeah when you do that when you're whether you wait wait till you're 16 or not it's, you're gonna be okay so
0: yeah um, how do you like this is kind of a weird question just building off what we said but how do you view that Christian discipleship happens in this kind of digital space, not only in the sense of like, you know, phone control, but like mm-hmm. the creative aspect that you're talking about, you know, it sounds like you, I'm hearing echoes of like, you know, tying it to the Imago Dei mm-hmm. and the, the way that we are made in God's image as co creators and sub creators. Mm-hmm. And that the more that technology is employed that way, it sounds like for your kids, at least you feel like, yeah, this is, this is what I want you to spend screen time on. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does that tie into like discipleship, which is, you know, traditionally concerned more with reading the Bible um, praying mm-hmm. and being a community service and stuff like that are you seeing ways that that is kind of tying in more deeply into the practice of christians or of churches mm.
1: that's a good question i i think i think it's the the overall just looking at the, your day and thinking about you know what what do i want it to look like you know ideally um and what 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 are the kinds of things that give me a sense of real rest how do i enjoy all that's good and fair that god's made um without being sort of distracted on, on all of these other other avenues and so i there certainly are the the, the moral things i mean s- some of us um struggle with substances some of us struggle with images you know the, the things that pull us and that we really need to block but i think for for most of us it's, the, it's these patterns and so you know we've, we've thought about like do we do we need to have phones by our bed as the alarm it's a, it's kind of not as fun to use an old school alarm clock, but if that if that gives me that little bit of a gap where I'm not immediately, you know, using my phone or something like that. So I think just being open with a, with a group when you're in some type of like one-on-one discipleship or small group of being like, what what do you guys feel like really gets you? And what, what kind of screen time, you know, when you look at your phone, on, when that thing, right before you go to church, the screen time, you know, message comes up and tells you how much you spent. Um, what does it look like? What do you want it to look like, and, and why? And I think uh, I think even probably as the time we're recording this, Elon Musk has owned Twitter for a week or two now. Yeah, <laughs> and I think we're all kind of reflecting on like, do we really want to be on a on a billionaire's website? Is that really what we want to do? You know, and yet, you know, I've kind of grown up with it and kind of kind of like it, you know. So, but I'm I'm wondering what is it that I do like, and, and just sort of re-questioning um, my desires and what I want to do with that.
0: it. You know, regardless of Elon owning it, I've I've decided to disable all my Twitter notifications because, especially yeah. when the Ukraine invasion started, I was addicted to Twitter just to get mm. every last update. And yeah. then my wife even noticed, just like, hey, you're like disconnected from me right now because you're yeah. so glued to your phone. Yeah, and uh, and just disabling the notifications helped to regain some sanity. The other thing that my wife did that was very nice. She got me this, uh, e-ink tablet called the remarkable mm. and, uh, it has, it has internet, but no browser. So, mm. and not even email. So all, it, it felt like, you know, like a paper notepad that's like digital. But yeah. the cool thing for me was that I got the ESV Bible in PDF form on it. Oh, and cool. then now like, I used to use the Bible app on my phone, you know, the one from you version all the time and uh, every day. And I would listen to the audio version or I would read it or whatever. Um, but then once I had it on the Remarkable tablet and I'm annotating it with a pen and like, everything, wow, my engagement with scripture just really uh, re I used to do that when, mm-hmm. I, when I was in college and stuff. And then with the convenience of the smartphone, I would, you know, I would multitask. I would do something and listen to an audio Bible, which is still mm-hmm. OK. But mm-hmm. I wasn't getting as much of the deep stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed how that that different format of tablet that's designed to be distraction free with the Bible in this bigger page format mm-hmm. with the pen, you know, a stylus wow i just i'm Mm -hmm. chewing on it i'm soaking it in and like uh going slow i'm not trying to get through a bible reading plan as fast as as i can anymore i'm just like okay i'm actually taking it all in and finding insights connecting dots and like it was so cool to experience that it was like the biggest benefit of that gift uh uh, was engaging with scripture more deeply than i have in a while um just because it it, the technology itself kind of uh invited me into that Mm -hmm. by its design if i can put it that way
1: yeah, so I want to take a tangent that would, that would um, go off what you're saying. So you you bought a device that has some type of limitation on it, which seems ridiculous. Why would we ever want to do that? Well, one one of the little things I thought it would be fun to add to this new edition of the book was to just think about the um, the days of creation. Mm. And you know, there's all the debates about um, time frames and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I think if we look at it, you know, poetically, we go, you know, those kind of the first three days that match the next three days, right? Mm. So the first three days have these separations. We separate light from um, darkness. We separate, you know, the the waters below from the waters above, and then we separate the land from the from the sea. And then the next three days, you you fill each of those with something mm-hmm. appropriate to the container. And so it it's this interesting thing of one, it's it's beautiful. It's simple, it's structured, it's purposed, all these just lovely things about that story, especially in contrast to all the creation stories that are uh, kind of in the ether at that time, you know, where the gods are chopping each other up and, you know, the humans are this afterthought and not made in the image of God, and maybe it's just men and not male and female, all that stuff. But just the, the rhythmic beauty of having things that are, you know, properly separated and that once those are once those lanes are established there's a kind of limitation that the first 3 days you know kind of places on the next 3 days mm-hmm. and then the the proper things go into their place it makes me think about, you know, most of creativity we would say is is born out of limitations in some mm-hmm. sense. Even if we think about, you know, a musical scale, there just are these resonances that are part of the universe that when we follow, it's better. And of course, we can choose to break that and that becomes the interesting part of a song or or a poem or something like that at times. But having that cadence does something to us. Mm-hmm. And so I think that our our affinitude and our limitation, even even in the creation account, you know, God puts this seventh day of of sabbath rest in it yeah and you know when when we look at exodus and deuteronomy the way that they frame the meaning of that is about uh celebration on one hand but also about a declaration that you're not a slave anymore
0: Uh because
1: only slaves work seven days a week but people Mm -hmm. who are not have time off yeah and people who are not have the ability to celebrate all that's good and fair and so when we look at it that way. Go, yeah, maybe, maybe I really do want some limitations in my life so that I don't constantly have something that's uh, jabbing at me. And may- maybe that's just as simple as you know not having ice cream in the house for you. <laughs> but like you said, maybe it's also um, not having quite as many choices at the moment to help you stay focused. And not because it's some great moral thing, but because you go, man, this is the kind of person I want to be, mm-hmm. both body and mind and soul, all, all of those things working together in a way. And so I think coming to terms with our finitude, whether that's... Um, what we can do with AI and surveillance, whether that becomes sleep, whether that is um, just how many followers we can handle or notifications, all that stuff. I think um, limitations are what would drive creativity and would drive us to be the humans God, I think, made us to be.
0: It almost sounds a little bit like uh, the the traditional list of uh, sins, like greed, like technology enables us to be so greedy, quote unquote, nowadays, because we have a super abundance of videos to watch a super abundance of followers that we can reach and all these other things and there's a certain kind of uh, spiritual discipline of restraint mm-hmm. i guess if you say i'm satisfied and yeah. I, I can enjoy now i don't have to max out and over optimize all of my platforms and all of my capabilities it just that kind of came to mind as you were describing mm-hmm. that yeah what would you or you want to say something to that
1: Oh no! Well, as you were just talking about it, it just reminded me. I was on a text thread with some friends, um, and you were talking. I we were kind of jokingly saying, "What what would what would this thread be worth? Would it be worth eight dollars a month if Twitter's eight dollars <laughs> a month? You know, would these interactions?" And I was like, "Man, I would much rather spend." a month to go have dinner with these guys than I would almost anything I do on Twitter, as much as I love it, as much as I love to see what's going on there. And I really think about it like in monetary terms, then I'm thinking about it in those attention terms and hours terms that I'm, I'm spending this time doing something that uh, may not actually be as enriching to me as if I just hung out with a friend every week or something like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great way to look at it. I wanted to ask you, since you proposed that exercise of thinking through what your ideal day would look like, what what does what's your ideal day look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I do enjoy, you know, getting up early enough to where I have a little bit of time to work on a Bible project, reading the Bible, something like that, um, which sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't, and then some type of, you know, physical exercise. And by that time, my kids and family are awake and I get to spend some time with them and have a nice work day the the catch is that you know in the middle of all that stuff there's always some extra project there's always some delay there's maybe i spent the the night before staying up too late and then i can't quite get up and that's those are the patterns that we all find ourselves into so when i think about like you know good relationships mm-hmm. good work and good rest being put together that seems a lot more healthy to me than this um oh i could do one more thing or oh i forgot that thing and and i open up my computer and the last five tabs are still open. And so I do that <laughs> instead of the thing I was planning on doing. And totally get that. that. That attention span, I think, man, I I just want to be be focused. And then when I'm working and then when I'm not, I want to be you know fully aware and present to the people that I'm with. Mm. And I want to drink
0: good things and eat good things <laughs> as much as I can. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm very food motivated myself. So uh, having that, it's uh, it just makes me want to go exercise to have a bakery at the end of that run or something like yeah, that. You know, right. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's interesting. Like, I feel like I don't have an ideal day because sometimes when I think of it, I end up getting discouraged because I know that most of my days are not ideal, yeah. but I do have an ideal, uh, I think, experience, which would be mm. unhurried. I want to yeah. be unhurried, but effective. And yeah. I I sometimes get that as a gift from God. I feel like some days are just like, whoa, how did that happen? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a lot of times I know I can get easily just kind of lost in my to-do list and just feel like I'm just trying to push it through and feeling exasperated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't say that I I haven't thought it through deeply enough to know, like how is technology impacting that? Mm -hmm. I know that technology is often, when I say technology, I know that you have a very nuanced definition, but I'll just say like, you know, social media, YouTube, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I can oftentimes use it as as a distraction from the pain of Mm -hmm. my work. It's like, you know, and it's not actually helping me to be effective. It's just helping me to cope. And that's different Mm -hmm. than the unhurried effectiveness that I sometimes taste and I just love um so
1: yeah that sense of you know flow or you know whatever you want to call it when you're coding or building something you just go for hours straight Mm -hmm. and you come out and you go man this is amazing and then to have that same type of just unhurried thing with another person Mm -hmm. a a spouse or a friend or a child and you think man that i i I lost track of time because i wasn't Mm -hmm. hurried. that those are the kind of experiences i think you want to have um and i think too when, when we're to think, as, as I age a little bit and I think about, um, I want to think in longer terms, you know, I want to think of what, what's something that would take five years of dedicated time to do mm. um, instead of just the, the next thing. So I think there is a place for fail fast and all, and all that too. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not trying to knock any of that, um, but to think about longer term things so I don't do too much. And it's been interesting to watch my son, um, he's been, you know, watching a lot of different YouTube people and he's been doing um, his own channel and building some really neat things. And as he as he watches, it, you you see even in folks that have no real spiritual sense or or that's not really a big part of them, they really talk about that 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 importance of focus that even great entrepreneurs might try to build ten businesses rather than. Uh, you know, focusing on making one really, really great, mm. and so thinking through how to how to optimize every step of one business may be way better than starting you know ten of them. And yeah. again, I'm not not that we shouldn't do that. Again, I'm not trying to make these uh, universal maxims. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's the propensity toward trying to do everything all the time that um, when you see everything, it sometimes pulls us into. And so, I think this is that part about technology that. It, it makes certain things possible. Sometimes we talk about the language of affordances. It mm-hmm. makes some things possible and kind of makes other things harder to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're not aware of that, I think you can get caught. If you see it, I think that you have a little bit more chance to direct yourself and say, okay, I, so many more things are possible for me today, but it would be better if I chose a few of them that, in a focused way that would um, kind of make myself and my relational community deeper.
0: Can you define the term affordances for listeners who may not be aware of what that is?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one, if we're talking about almost in negative terms, who would say, for example, if I'm um, at McDonald's, it only affords me a certain set of choices or if I'm at, say a bar, I have a different set of choices of what's available to me. And so maybe some things may be, you know, tempting in the spiritual language of of sin or something like that at one place versus the other, mm. maybe one toward gluttony and one toward a certain level of alcohol or something like that. Mm. Or, if, or if, for example, if I'm, if I'm, um, at a place where I can gamble, it, now that's a there's the affordance there. Mm. So um, we think about all the things that technology makes possible. today of you know I can order anything I want at any time and have it there in twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. or I can, you know, watch anything I want at, at any time. And so now uh, the way we consume the music or or TV, all that stuff is is now very, very different than it would have been ten years ago or twenty years ago or thirty years ago so it's it's afforded or opened up these opportunities for us and now we want to go so now that i have almost infinite choices um how do i how do i feel healthy because there is this concept of like a paradox of choice that the more the more options you have in front of you the more anxious you get about making those decisions yeah, if you only have you know two things in front of you, you can feel good about it. Or even if you just have one, you don't even think about it. And so that's that whole thing of Steve Jobs wearing the same thing every day or Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. wearing the same thing every day because um, they they have decision fatigue. And so I think we all kind of get that decision fatigue because there's so wide of an affordance today with all the, all the things we have. And in one way, that's glorious. And another way, we got to embrace our limitations to be, I think, who got made us to be.
0: Yeah, I think uh, just I, I I heard the word affordances first in the context of user experience design mm-hmm. and the book like Don't Make Me Think, I think it was yeah, a user experience yeah. design book. And I just remember uh, the, a positive example of an affordance is like those doors with a push bar mm-hmm. on one side and a handle on the other. You don't have to think. If it's a push bar, you just automatically know you, you're going to push yeah. it open. If it's a handle, you know you got to pull it. Yeah. And so the affordance on the door makes it so clear to the user what you're supposed to do you, yeah. you don't have to teach anybody anything and that was like a positive example of a a well-designed affordance that i remember learning about from some of those ux design books yeah um, but yeah. now i'm hearing it in another language which you're talking about which is here's all the possibilities that i'm affording to you now mm-hmm. and it can be pretty overwhelming i remember the old days of uh like uh, ripping cds and mm-hmm. curating my music library and i would spend, as a kid a teenager i would spend like you know hours uh, just trying to build up my collection of music and what do I like and everything. And then once like, you know, Spotify, Amazon music and all these things come out, it's just like, wow, I, I spend zero time curating what I really love. I just kind of like take whatever's given to me and yeah. I don't actually always love it, you know? And yeah. uh, uh, and so what, what a different experience of uh, music now that it's evolved to the way that it is. And um, there's a certain kind of nostalgia. I maybe because I'm older now, but like even just playing records or putting in a CD or whatever like that, that, that,
1: mm-hmm. uh, yeah
0: it's a more embodied feeling I don't know what, I don't know what the word is is there something about it that I do miss um, yeah. that curation that, that's slowing it down
1: yeah and there was that, that book a couple of years ago the revenge of the analog where there's you know people wanting to get vinyl for for music just because that, that experience um, has something to it and I think I think the whole the last 20 years of coffee culture and then uh, craft beer culture and you know all of those things I think I think are this longing for something you know local and custom instead of mass produced you know and even if it is still somewhat mass-produced, we're, <laughs> we're having some sense that man, I, I, I want to have, I want to have this experience that isn't just, um, I don't know, the, the same thing all, all the time, all, everywhere, and I want to feel like I'm connected to something. Mm. But I like, I like the example you gave of um, the, the door, where it's someone's intentionally planning on something to make the pathway is simpler. And I think, I think you can do this in your own life where, you know, you set out your gym clothes the night before or something like that. Mm -hmm. So when you wake up, you've reduced the complexity of the the tasks that you want to do. So I think you can create affordances for yourself that, um, that streamline the the kind of person that you actually want to be. And Mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, maybe cut out things you don't want to do, like, like pushing the bar from the wrong side or something like that. So, Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. How I, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier about um, at the very beginning of this, Talk that technology is in some ways a, a foretaste, or a, I like to say, mm-hmm. a foretaste of God's kingdom, a witness to the kingdom. It does; it's not a solution, it's not a savior, it's not techno-solutionism, um, but it is a witness to what God's kingdom is like. And people who experience the goodness of it maybe have an evangelistic taste, almost of like, oh, like if I like this, mm-hmm. this is I'm actually liking something about God's kingdom, yeah. and I'm just curious about as, as you've kind of explored the space and seen the unlimited possibilities that are afforded to us now, in addition to this like nostalgic kind of like desire to curate and um, experience things differently, what, what are you seeing as glimpses of God's kingdom through the, the vast spectrum of the ways that, you know, we can experience uh, technology today? And it doesn't have to be exhaustive. It's just like, what are some glimpses that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. No, I'm not. Every once in a while, when I see one of those you know, space travel videos, I think the dude, perfect guys, got on a SpaceX recently, uh-huh. or something like that. As my daughter watching that, and I thought, man, the, the 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 little facial expression that you see when people come off, where they're like, man, I had this encounter with something big. You know, I think I think even the way, I think I saw William Shatner say something of just how even though he doesn't have any sense of, of, of God, I don't think in his own conception, just the awe that it sort of inspired for the love of humanity and, and caring for the creation, I think was really a big impression. So that, that's neat, I think, when we have these chances to see outside of ourselves in, in really big ways. And I think there's some fun in the in the AI parts so of just going, man, what would have been like to be like God setting into motion these things? I and mean, I, mean, I think about um, my, my own probably proclivity is more toward maybe God um, setting an evolutionary pathway going. And so I think about him putting all of this life Capacity there, and just watching it grow, you know, mm. and getting to humanity, you know, like waiting for that moment—how exciting that would be! And so, when I see an AI generate something, I it's just so fun to see. And then when you when you see it make something ridiculous, it's kind of funny at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, and so, I think about just how funny our bodies are in some ways. When they're just they're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of silly, you know, yeah. in some ways, and yet they're glorious and beautiful at the same time. And so, just I think whatever technology becomes, this kind of mirror that helps you see something that you didn't see as clearly before or notice something. I think that's a really lovely part about it. And, uh, and I think any of the restorative things where you see someone, um, being able to have just some glimpse of, you know, whether it's bodily or in their mind, something that, um, it was a real struggle that, that something is able to overcome or at least for a little while. Mm. And, uh, th- those can be, I think, lovely things.
0: Yeah, I see. I remember, uh, doing a uh, back in the day before we have all of our large language models i uh, made an ai that could generate sermons and i trained it on jonathan Edwards sermons uh, yeah. and it was really funny because back then not every sentence was usable even today not every sentence is usable but there were some really good lines yeah. that were hilarious uh but also some lines that obviously were wrong like third corinthians 13 or something like that they just made <laughs> up new verses you know that didn't yeah. exist yeah. um but i remember thinking like hmm, i wonder if like I wonder if one day we could even distinguish between an AI generated sermon and one written by a yeah. pastor. Like I'm thinking back then. This is like probably like seven years ago or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what that would do to the vocation of preaching and other things like that when mm-hmm. so much content is available. This is just a random segue. Do you have thoughts about that? Have you played with any of the large language models and, you know, what you see happening in the world? Because Christian content, so much of it is textual, you know, yeah. uh, we're, we're people of the book. And so much of our work is in that space. Do you have thoughts about that intersection of what it's going to do?
1: Yeah. I and mean, I've done some of the, the basic stuff, right? So I, I bought worship and threw one of those things on there. So that oh, nice. you yeah. a good, uh, worship lyrics generated for you and you can put in contemporary Christian music or the Psalms or older ones just to kind of see you know, <laughs> what, what comes in versus what goes out. And it's using a pretty basic Markov chain thing. So it's not that, not that great compared to those models, but just something that can run in the browser. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's just fun to see. And, and, and every once in a while, you get this, like you said, really great line. I, I mean, as you know, most of these things are trying to mimic something else, and they're. I mean, there's always this question of is it conscious? But I think we would say the model is not trying to replicate consciousness, it's just trying to, um, you know, when, when one word what's the most likely word to come after that, you know, and yep. it knows that numbers should come before and after Corinthians, but I doesn't really know which ones yet, you know so i think there's a ways to go before that and I've, I've seen some models that are built more to try to have the meaning capacity for them where you know the structure of the sentence is known and it's not just um repeating kind of common patterns but it's amazing that even in this kind of common pattern creation how good the ai image generation is right and then also how good even the text prompts are you know we yeah. the, ask these things theological questions and you're like and that that's really well worded, you know um, and then all of a sudden it d- says this does something bonkers. I, I mean, I think we're still a, you know a generation of technology away from it being more um, kind of thought based and trying to actually push something out. and that'll be really, really fascinating to see and and you and you kind of go, I think this would be I don't know there's a lot there's a lot of ways you go with this. The thing that just struck in my mind was, you know we built in the last kind of century or so, Um, We solved the problem for uh, rich people, food, right? All human existence was not having enough food. Now that's done. And then transportation, right? You couldn't get somewhere in a certain amount of time. Now we can do that. But now we're all kind of unhealthy in our bodies, you know? And so we have to invent words like exercise and all this sort of stuff. And now we're at that stage where we're making brain games and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's going to be the really interesting thing is – Why would you memorize poetry when the AI can make more beautiful poetry than you do? And so you go, it comes back to that thing of the things that we do regularly are what form us. Hmm. So it's not just about being able to get access to information. It's about sort of developing and cultivating wisdom inside you. And so it really doesn't matter if AI is able to, to do that. It's whether or not you can do it right? Mm. Or if you want to become the kind of person that can do that, if you want to become the kind of person that can run five miles without stopping, you, you cannot get on a segue, you know, yeah. every single day, you have to do the discipline. And so if you want to be the kind of person that can write worship lyrics, or, or whatever it is that you want to, be able to do, that you've got to immerse yourself in that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not as concerned with the other side of it as to what kind of person I want to be. And then I've, I've said that in very individualistic terms of can I think about it in some kind of communal sense? Can I say what type of friendships, relationships, community do I want to have? Do, do we want to commit something to each other? Do we want to, um, you know, have church membership is, or is that just that that's just too much for me? Um, mm-hmm. Where do I want to place limitations on myself and my community that form us in the direction we want to go? So I love the AI question, um, yeah, yeah. what we'll do, but it just makes me come back to how am I forming myself in my community?
0: Mm, it sounds like it's kind of like, uh, we've shifted from scarcity and survival towards intentionality. Like yeah. now that we have abundance, it's kind of like, how can we be intentional in what we're becoming with it or what we yeah. have as a bigger, we of a community as well yeah. are becoming mm-hmm. with it. That's great. And, uh, before we wrap up the episode, I know that you are a software developer as well, and you have so many cool projects that you've made. Maybe can you highlight some of the, some of the fun yeah. things? Like you did, you already mentioned worship.ai. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. What
0: are what are some other really cool tech uh, software things that you've been?
1: Building? Yeah. I mean, w- one of the ones that was d- less um, religiously oriented was just a, a video player that was kind of that early days of flash and HTML five transition. Mm-hmm. And that, that one was a bit, you know, Part of twitter and facebook for a little bit they use that and wordpress still has it as part of the course so it's been fun to you know build things that get used in a broader so community cool. sense and i think some of what it did in terms of that that era of flash it wasn't as necessary going forward. But that was just a fun era to be a part of just the broader world of open source technology. Mm -hmm. On the specific project side, um, you know, when I was in seminary, we'd always ask, what's the best commentary on Matthew or Isaiah or Ruth? And different professors would give you different lists. And so I thought, man, what if I could make a Rotten Tomatoes for commentaries? And so there's a little website called bestcommentaries.com that that, aggregates all the reviews and all that sort of stuff. And you can start there and and, uh, still talk with other people. But that would be one. Um, I I did make uh you yeah, know there's there's you version, and I really wanted to emphasize that in Greek and Hebrew there are second person plurals. You know there's you singular and you plural in Greek and Hebrew. Uh-huh. So I made It's dot com which tries to highlight as many of those as possible. And um, I'm actually kind of working on a separate project to see if I can get that into you know, print or something like that because it's really <laughs> important for us to identify um, as a community. So yeah passage like Jeremiah 29, 11 that says, I know the plans I have for you. It, it really says, I know the plans I have for y'all. Y'all, yeah. That uh-huh. the, the community of God, um, uh-huh. certainly about you individually as well, but you in the context of, of creation of those who are believers. So I think... That, those are fun um, projects that go in and out, and you know it, it's a blast to be to make those kind of things.
0: So, how how are you able to to do that software engineering work while you're also doing your scholarly work and professor teaching work and all those things?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of my you know job here at DTS is I, I only teach a class or two. Okay. And on the other side, I run a lot of the online ed and distance ed, so I get to kind of play in that in that space. And even when I'm trying to do things like uh, do reports on our students, you know, I get to get underneath the hood and, and do some SQL and all that kind of stuff. Um, okay. In terms of like, you know, raw software development, that's more like when I have a want. So our, our, I think I was looking at different Bible reading plans and I couldn't come up with one I liked. And I was like, yeah, I bet I could make something. So of course I went and bought Bible reading plan generator.com. <laughs> and then you know you go in there and you can customize the books and the thing. And it, and it works the way I wanted it to work. You know, so sometimes it's just that. You know how they say, like you know, if if you want to learn code, don't get a book. Be angry about something, you know, then you, then you'll you'll work your way through to learning it's that motivated. language. Uh-huh. Um, so you got to code angry, right? And so when you and and so when you've got a problem you want to solve, and I and I hope that somebody else wants the same problem solved. That's always been my you know biggest motivator for those kinds of projects. So, um, but you know how it is. Really good projects, you got to work on it a long time. But nobody notices it until mm-hmm. you. Put it out there and so um it can seem like someone's done all this stuff and i'm like well i'm i'm in my 40s now i've had plenty of time so um, you know
0: that's wonderful thank you so much john i really value your contributions to theology of technology especially because you're not just a theologian but you're a technologist yeah. you actually are making all these things and so it was just so fun to to have your book and i'm so glad that you've been able to update it and i know you've been doing a lot of other yeah. works too about digital bibles is that right how uh yeah. how it's shaped uh, yeah, if you have a
1: minute, I could give you a, just a give, brief. Yeah, let's, of let's that, do that. Yeah, why don't you share yeah, yeah, sure about that? It this comes out of my doctoral work over in Durham, England. And okay. it was, uh, so the book's title is The People of the Screen. And it's about how evangelicals create the digital Bible and then how it shapes the way we read it. Hmm. And so my, my question was hey, all this idea of shaping, um, I wonder what the developers of Bible software are thinking about how they're shaping people. And mm. so, I thought, man, I want to go ask um, those developers, and I could do this as a sociological project. And as I started looking at it, I found that most of them are evangelicals. So if we mm. go to the earliest area er, era of computer stuff with Bibles, kind of the 60s when people were doing more, you know, Greek stuff. And trying to figure out can i can i compute things about you know the way how often paul uses this term or whatever yeah that era was pretty broad but once you get to the 80s and desktop software it really is evangelicals that start to take over and then you get to mm. the kind of 90s internet bible gateway area again all the bibles bible uh websites are you know kind of evangelical and then when you get to the app era you know you version and others that's where they tend to come from and so it made me kind of wonder what are the characteristics of evangelicalism that seem to be more geared toward this because sometimes yeah. you evangelicals as being like anti-society, mm. but in other ways, it seems like there's a, a propensity to, you know, embrace elements of things that are happening in the midst of cultural change and kind of reject some things and then appropriate others and then, and then use them. So like any good sociologist, I came up with this little like three word term that's got a bunch of long words. So I call it hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism to describe mm. the approach. So we, we can unpack that a little bit more, but the, the hopeful is just the sense that you're aware of problems the downsides. You're not totally instrumentalist a little bit, but you're somewhat aware of it, but you generally think that it's better to use it than to not use it. And mm-hmm. then evangelicals, at least, especially in, in America, but even in Europe and in the rest of the world, didn't have that church state funding model that was happening in europe so you kind of have to be entrepreneurial and so it's Mm. kind of built in the dna of that form of a religion and then the pragmatism can either be really, really positive, where you're saying, "Hey, let's 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 uh, not get into all these petty issues, right? We let's major on the majors and not the minors, and let's work together." Uh-huh. Um, the negative side is that sometimes, you know, we've seen evangelicals, particularly in the last several years, work with people maybe they ought not have, uh, in the way that they associate, that that the outcome becomes more important than any sense of character along the way. Uh-huh. But um, we see that in, in technology, and so. Uh-huh the The fun thing was doing that side of it, working with the developers, seeing how they thought about what they were doing, mm. and just just the I mean, you you know, some of these folks they've done an amazing, neat, neat, neat work and really thought deeply about it. And maybe the first time I remember talking with Terry Storch about, um, you know, how'd you pick verse of the day? Did you did you think about kind of this balance of theology? It's like, man, I just grabbed an Excel list and just did it, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then later on, realize, oh, I should be more reflective about it. So there's that like build and think you know and, and i and i love that about those different teams on the on the user end i'll mention one quick thing and then we, we i'll keep it just keep it short but i did some tests with a bunch of users to see going to different churches and having half read in print and half read on their phones mm. it's really really interesting to see you know, there's some comprehension differences between male and female that men seem to be lower comprehension on their phones than women did. Oh. They seem to read more often. If you gave them a multi-day reading plan, the men would be on it more often. Hey. So it seems like there may be some behavioral differences in the ways we're on our phones. Hey. And on the, on the other side, um, I had them read Jude, and I asked them um, you know, to do some comprehension on, on parts about it. But I also asked them, you know, what did you think it was about and how did it make you feel? And there was kind of this opposite difference between the phone and print group in this way. The print group would say, I think Jude is about God's judgment for sin. Okay. And the phone group would say, well, I think this is about God's faithfulness. Hmm. Well, So how did it make you feel? Well, the print readers that said this is about God's judgment, they said, man, I feel encouraged. And the phone readers who said this is about God's faithfulness, they said, I kind of feel confused. (laughs) Encouraged. Whoa. And so, so that's what the data shows. You go, man, that's really interesting. And so that's data. My hypothesis about that is this: mm-hmm. that you know our, our phones, um, we're on it all the time, and they sometimes represent our anxiety. At the same time, when we see spiritual content on you know Instagram or TikTok or whatever, yeah. it typically is pretty on the positive side, mm-hmm. It's encouraging God's faithfulness. It's not you know Isaiah where God's like stomping on the entrails of the wicked and the bloods between his toes. Those aren't the first mm-hmm. things we share on media. So the God of our screens is kind of happy, but he makes us sad.
0: Ah.
1: And I don't, I don't think that's universal. I'm not saying don't use your phone, don't listen. I'm just saying be aware of the associations with the device. Be aware of what's happening when you're using it. Mm-hmm. Because there are these subtle things that um, we don't always pick up on. And we're always... You know, editing and only seeing certain things about Scripture, and so I think I think the cool thing about this era is that we didn't. You know, we went from um, scrolls to codices. We went from codices to print. Mm-hmm. We're not going from print to digital. We're going to print and digital. Mm-hmm. We're kind of doing both. We're in this multimedia environment, so we can listen to Scripture, we can search on our phones, and read on print. Um, I think just being aware of that and is, is going to be really helpful for us going forward.
0: Yeah, I remember when I would read my print Bible more, it's just the bigger page layout lets me make connections between the texts that are far bigger than on my small phone screen. Yeah, I just, the, the synthesis can happen. It's so much bigger and connecting other passages of scripture. It's more holistic. And we did a project in the midst of the pandemic called Church Digital Transformation that resulted in a prototype of possibly a virtual space where you can have all the scripture laid out uh, in its, you know, book form. And it can be explored together in that virtual space. Mm-hmm. And uh it was we never got to build the thing, but uh we got to do some concept art for it. And it was just interesting to, to have that uh yeah, that 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 digital space where scripture's at the center, um, mm-hmm. but it's laid out spatially so that mm-hmm. uh, if you've ever used a mirror board, it's like you can see the whole board, zoom out, zoom in, go wherever you want, right make connections. That was, I hope one day you can get funded to go all the way because I think that that's a very interesting concept. The other thing that uh, what you said brought, reminded me of is that we did a hackathon of Code for the Kingdom back in 2015 or something at Microsoft. And uh, because there was um, some access to the Bing search traffic data, uh, one team actually made a visualization of scripture of the Bible where the font size correlates to the search volume. Hmm. And it was fascinating to read the book of Matthew in the, uh, I think the blessed are the, the the Be- not the Beatitudes. is it the Beatitudes? Yeah, the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. Because you see like, you know, uh, blessed are the peacemakers called sons of God. And those are huge, right? And then there's one Beatitude that's like tiny. Nobody ever searches for it. And it's blessed are, are you when they persecute you and say all kinds of false things about wow. you. Uh, yeah. And it's like, it's just so interesting to see the consumption patterns of yeah. scripture based yeah. off search volume traffic. And then the idea that came out of that was like, well, maybe we should build like a heat map of the Bible to kind of know where you're exposed to Scripture and where you're not, so that you can have a more holistic uh, mm. experience of Scripture, not just like the verses that are curated and put on social media, like you said, yeah. on your phone. Yeah. Um, and if, you, if we had that viz, we could just kind of be aware, and then the AI or something could just kind of surface to us dark part, dark parts of the Bible that we yeah. become more exposed to. That's cool. So, never yeah. got to fully implement that either. But since you know you're already in conversation with people, I wonder if one day <laughs> these ideas might happen because i I think that they're a way to use technology that helps us to live into what god is actually inviting us to all of scripture the whole counsel of god instead of just um, kind of being forced into a mold by the way social media kind of treats you know breaks up the text and, of course, causes us to read the most inspiring verses all the time and mm-hmm. miss the context. Um, yeah. But yeah. Oh, that's
1: so neat. I, a, a similar thought occurred to me that, that making kind of like a community Bible, where if you went to it and you typed in a passage, you could only view it if somebody else was on the oh. website viewing that same verse at the same time. And so it, it required this like other to ah. encounter scripture. And it's really similar to what you're saying. Is like maybe there's like a, a half life of the verse that if somebody hasn't been there in a while, that it's faded out and you can't see it anymore. Mm. But just this this sense of uh, that, yeah, you know, we we need to sort of um, we need to live scripture and we need to be in it together and not just you know consume it or have it over to the side, but to actually um, to do it and to have it be
0: part of us. What a great note to end this episode of the Theotech Podcast. A big thanks to John for sharing his ideas and insights with us and to all of our listeners for thinking together about the theology of technology. If you would like to support more stories of the intersection of faith and technology, you can do so at patreon.com slash Theotech. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year!